Hey, it's Kurt Sanders. Last week on Telltale, our guest Peter Ellis implored us to think globally and think far bigger about our businesses right from the outset. Here's a reminder of what she said. But are they working on something that's big enough? So let's stop playing around with the small, great, fun app ideas that, or double-sided marketplaces which does everyone's head in, um, in terms of trying to onboard customers on both sides. But are they working on something that's going to fundamentally change or transform an industry? or fundamentally change or transform an organisation. Funnily enough, just to the north of Australia, a fairly short flight away, are 650 million people who see Australia as the home to aspirational, premium and covetable products and services, and they are hungry for them. This week on the Telltale Podcast, Nathan Harvey, who is the founder of business consultancy Gameplan Asia and is also the former CFO of Flight Centre India and Singapore, gets real about the huge opportunities Southeast Asia has on offer for Australian businesses. He discusses how businesses should hit the ground running in Southeast Asian nations. He talks about the cultural nuances that affect the little things businesses need to be aware of. And of course, the importance of building an audience for your business in the most effective and simple way. And here's a hint. It just might be while these Southeast Asian visitors are here in Australia, which they are in droves. This is the season one finale of Telltale. Let's play. Welcome to Telltale the podcast where marketers can learn from interviews with fantastic storytellers. Hello everybody and welcome to episode 21 of the Telltale Podcast and the season one finale which we're extremely excited about. But on today's show we have with us a very special guest. This is Nathan Harvey, the founder of Game Plan Asia and the former CFO of Flight Centre Singapore and India. Nathan, welcome to the Telltale Podcast. Thanks, it's great to be here. Thank you for coming along, mate. Let's, let's dive straight in. Your background is quite fascinating. You have started, acquired and run companies in India and Singapore as part of the Flight Centre Group. That's a pretty incredible thing to have on your resume. Tell us where that all began and how that started. Yeah, well, it all kind of came about by accident. Um, I, I wish it was by design, but um, I'd be lying if I said it was. So I'm, a, I'm an accountant by background. I know nothing about marketing, just to say that up front. Um, and I'd been working uh, with the Flight Centre Travel Group for a couple of years in their, in their risk and audit team when an opportunity came along for a two-week project in India to... Uh, go and help with the due diligence and the acquisition of a, of a, a company over there. Um, I think I knew at the time it was never going to be a, a two-week journey. It was going to take much longer than that. I'd travelled India before and I knew that the wheels of bureaucracy grind pretty slowly in that country. So let's, let's skip a bit. Two weeks. What did it turn into? Yeah, so it, it turned, turned into two and a half years. Right, spent, okay. We spent about six months to uh, get the acquisition done and over the line. And as the, uh, as the acquisition team were flying out, I sort of uh, was on the phone to my, to my boss at the time uh, saying, you know, I've actually got a soft spot for this country. I don't think I'm done with it yet. Um, I'd really like to take on the, the CFO gig. And fortunately, uh, there weren't a whole lot of people in line behind me for it. So he, he uh, signed me up and I was the CFO for the India business for about two years. 
Um, after that, my, my wife pleaded with me again and again that time was up in India and an opportunity came along in Singapore. So we moved from um, the bustling, you know, melting pot of diversity that is India to another melting pot of diversity, which is Singapore, uh, and spent four and a half years there sort of running the finance uh, team and the finance uh, strategy for the Flights and Travel Group in Singapore and then ultimately Southeast Asia. Right, so it's, it's a pretty varied and diverse background, India to Singapore, like couldn't be more different as far as business setup goes? It couldn't be more different as far as business setup goes, but you'd be surprised. I mean, there are a lot of similarities between the way business is done in, um, in India and Singapore and Australia. On the surface, I think it looks very, very different and very chaotic and all that sort of thing, but I don't think it matter, matters what country you operate in. There are, you know, there's this great tapestry of, of similarity between um, the way, you know, people's, people's innate urges of, of what they want out of business and what they want to get done. And so I think as much as there is diversity, there is similarity too. Yeah, sure. So Game Plan Asia, you've arrived back in Australia in the past year and you've been working on this project, Game Plan Asia, which is about helping businesses, government, all different kinds of, of organisations access and enter the Asian market because there is such a huge opportunity. You've read written countless blogs about the opportunity there. Tell us, um, you know, what's your specialty in, in entering Asia for business and why? What's the opportunity? Sure. So I think at the end of my time in Asia, I, I spent a bit of time sitting on a beach in Bali between um, when I finished up in, in Singapore and when I came back to Australia. It was during that time that I really started to integrate myself back into the Australian ecosystem of what was going on in Australia, in Queensland and specifically here in Brisbane. And it was then that I realised that um, I'd been on this incredible journey from, from India to Singapore and Malaysia and the Philippines and everywhere else in between, but there wasn't this awareness in Australia of what the opportunities were. Um, you know, we're talking about a population across Southeast Asia of 650 million people. It's huge. It's growing at a, a rapid rate. You've got some of the fastest growing economies in the world. Myanmar is up there as last year, I think, it was the fastest growing economy around about 8% year on year. So you've got... A, a big base, rapidly growing economies and demands that naturally tailor to what Australia is really good at. So, and, and with those demands, like what's the why behind it? Why is Southeast Asia in particular so hungry for what Australia has to offer? I don't, I don't think there is one why. I think there are multiple whys. I think you've got a, with any growing economy, you've got, um, you, you've got class accession. So you've got a rapidly growing middle class in places like Singapore and they're hungry for, you know, the sexy food that we produce in Australia and that sort of thing. Then if you flick across to somewhere like Myanmar, which is coming out of decades of, of isolation, they're going through a massive growth phase as well, but it's, um, it's around infrastructure and um, you know, building the social goods and the, and the um, public spaces and the private spaces that will drag that country from its isolation to integration with the, with the wider world. So I think, there are, I think there are a number of whys, and it varies depending on the stage of development that each country is at. Um, and like I said, you know, I think some great opportunities for Australia, I typically talk about three buckets, that is the food bucket, and that's everything from um, farming practices and ag tech right up to food on the plate. Infrastructure is absolutely huge, and then services, and I just think that those are three buckets that Australian businesses do are very, are very good at. Yeah, right. And let's just say I'm a business, so I've got a product, let's call it a food product, that mm. I sell within Australia. Where do I start? 
what, what's the starting point for me for, for getting into Asia? Yep. So I think, you know, I always tell people, get on a plane and get up there and experience it yourself. There are, um, there are government agencies out there that can help you, like uh, Austrade and, and things like that. But, you know, you're never going to learn how your product is going to work in a market until you go and see that market space and, and, and touch it for yourself. So I would, I would get on a plane to Singapore. I would get on a plane to Jakarta or to Indonesia. Um, I would get on a plane to, to Yangon in Myanmar and see these markets for themselves and what's going on there. That's a, um, you know, it's, travel is cheap these days comparatively and it's, it's mm. not expensive to spend a few days working in market or just visiting markets up there to get a sense for yourself as to what's going on. Um, so that's, that's one very good avenue. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of information out there as well. There are a lot of agencies... Um, government agencies, non-government agencies that produce some very good data and some very good information around the market themselves. The other avenue I think though that's really underutilised here is um, visitors to our country. We've got a large influx of students coming into our country who come here to study. We've got a large influx of tourists who come here to study and that's a great way to start to understand the demands and the way that people work up in up in Southeast Asia, particularly. Yeah, I mean Br Brisbane, in particular, attracts a huge amount of international students. So I believe it's about eighty thousand a year. Um, one of Brisbane's biggest sort of industries, really. When when we think about it, we've got huge um, infrastructure commitments and things that are in play, like you know student accommodation and all those things. So there's a huge uh, opportunity for businesses to understand those guys. Um, I guess one of the biggest surprises for businesses might be the cultural nuances that they run into when they try to enter a country. Give you an example, a client that I've worked with recently um, was in Singapore and they actually watched someone buying their product off the shelf. They had that opportunity, mm. they just happened to be there and someone was considering it. And they looked at their product and they picked up the five different variations of it and they looked at it and they read it and they put it down and they spent a good 10 minutes like someone who was desperately wanting to buy their product but didn't in the end and they went to them afterwards and said all right so what what stopped you from buying it and they said well I just don't understand it like I know I want that but I don't know what to do with it so it was a food product mm. um how do you combat that like I know you're saying get up there get into the country like what what different services or what different um, strategies are available for these businesses to really delve into the cultural side? Yeah, I, and I don't. That's not a that's not a short term play. That's a that's a massively long play. But like I said, I mean, you've got you've got students. You've got a mass of of um, of people coming down here for various reasons, coming down to Australia. And I, I really think, as I said before, that's an underutilized asset. There are more mobile phones in Indonesia than there are people. These are massively social savvy people. So if you can tap into and start to capture that audience, um, and I, you know, you're all about audience. So if you can start to capture that audience and tell them about product while they're here in Australia, um, and start to understand them, and then sort of you know build your product and and sell your product whilst they're here in Australia, create advocates for you so that when they go back to their home country, be Indonesia, Philippines, or whatever. 
um, you've already got a, a bit of an inbuilt audience to help spread the word about your, your great product. Yeah, and it, that makes a lot of sense because um, we, we talk about all the time with clients about, oh, you know, I want to start a, a WeChat account or a, or a Weibo account, and, mm. you know, I want to be in China. But, like, that is literally like shooting a gun at the sky because mm. you've got to acquire audience. You do, it's not like you just build it and then all of a sudden people go, oh, sweet, I want that thing. You've got to have a human connection, and, and creating the advocates while they're here builds you a custom audience over there. Utilize that channel. That's the channel. Absolutely, and I think... You know, I don't want to sort of blindside people. This is not a short-term game. This is you, you have to go into Southeast Asia. I think any new market you've got to go into with a long-term strategy of how you're going to get there. You can't just rock up in market, um, do a few meet and greets, drink a few cups of tea, go out for a beer at night, and then get back on your plane and fly home again and think that everything is going to be savvy. You've got to invest in this both in terms of dollars, but also yourself personally or your business personally. Um, so there's a lot... Um, there's a lot of investment that needs to go into an Asia strategy or any any global um, global growth strategy. But I think when you look at the numbers, there's a, such a great opportunity there that it just makes sense. It yeah. just, you know, you're, you're talking about 25 million people here in Australia. That's fantastic. Versus 650 million people across that Southeast Asian region. Not even talking about China or India. Um, you've got a, a great playground to um, to muck in, and it's it's easily accessible from our market. So this yeah, so it, sorry to interrupt. I, I think you probably nailed maybe a bit of a business mindset in Australia of we're not quite like even in the SME space, probably more so that we're not actually used to scalability on that level. Like so, maybe we've got a fear of it, or maybe we couldn't be bothered. So um, that's potentially something that needs to change because you know this that we're just going to get closer to Asia in the next 20 years. I think any new business that is at a point of commercialisation, has a product, should be not thinking about the Australian market, but should be thinking about the greater Asian markets, if not a global strategy. Um, I, I don't think you can be a successful, scalable business this day and age without having a... A, a large, you know, a, a real BHAG about where you're going to go with your product, where you're going to go about with your service, um, just sort of focusing on Australia. Um, yeah, no, I, I yeah. completely agree. I completely agree. So let's talk about some of the maybe the more nuanced things. What were some of the challenges you ran into acquiring the business in India for, yeah. for, for Flight Centre? And um, even down to a cultural level, like any of the anecdotes that you can think of. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I flew into India. I, I travelled around the country a bit. I backpacked around the country a little bit. So I had a bit of an understanding of the culture. But, you know, it was very... It was through the, you know, the rose-coloured glasses of a tourist. Um, landing there and having to find a place to live and figure out how to, to, you know, buy your milk and bread and all that sort of thing just brought a whole new... Um, you know, level of, of complexity to the game. But I think the one thing that stands out in my mind is working for someone like Flight Centre with a very bombastic culture. Um, you know, every month we would have these reward and recognition nights where we'd celebrate successes and things like that. Um, I had to translate that into an, into an Indian context. And celebrating, you know, reward and recognition in Australia means going down to the pub, having a few drinks and, you know, getting a bit rowdy later on in the evening. In India, that's not necessarily the way things are done. So how do you take that culture of reward and recognition and translate it into the Indian context? And this is what I was saying earlier on about the similarities. Everyone likes to be recognised. Everyone likes to be celebrated when they have a great success. And 
I tried and failed a couple of times to just take our model from Australia and dump it into India. You can't change 1,500 years of culture overnight. And I quickly realised that I had to find something that would tapped into um, the Indian psyche and, and something that I could share in as well. And cricket, I mean, you know, these two great cultures of Australia and India, they share this, um, you know, this massive comp competitive streak in, on, on the cricket pitch. So what better way to celebrate? So we would inevitably have um, reward and recognition around a cup of tea, a couple of samosas and a game of backyard cricket. And that just translated sensationally and we still got that opportunity to celebrate and reward people for their great successes. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's just a, a simple anecdote to demonstrate that there are a lot of cultural nuances, as you say, but there are also similarities. Everyone likes to be rewarded and recognised for their performance. Yeah, that's universal, no doubt about it. No one. Yeah, sure. Okay, so when you um, you went from India to Singapore, obviously a bit of a change there, different mm. different cultures, different kinds of cities to Delhi compared mm. to Singapore. You know, Singapore's a stunning city. Mm. Um, so is Delhi. Don't want to offend any of, <laughs> any of our Indian listeners out there, but of course they are different. Um, so you went to Singapore for Flight Centre as well mm. in a CFO role, but you actually transitioned into sort of a market expansion role, right? Um, for, for Flight Centre? Yeah, so over time there was, um, you know, at that particular time in Flight Centre's journey, there was this, um, I guess, appetite to diversify and explore businesses outside of the core travel model. Um, and so we looked at a number of things. I think probably the, the one standout was going into the Philippines and um, establishing a, a data analytics business which was built around um, corporate travel um, and the, I guess, the data that comes out of corporate travel and trying to leverage internally but also ultimately externally how we could use that data or commercialise that data. Um, so that was, that was quite an interesting episode. Um, but the one thing, I guess, just stepping back about, you know, between Singapore and India, um, the one thing I will say about Singapore is I, I was brought up to believe that I lived in a multicultural society here in Australia. And I think it wasn't until I went to Singapore that I really learned the true definition of what a multicultural society is. Here is a country that's 52, 53 years old this year. Um, it celebrates the holidays of Christianity, Islam, of Buddhism and of Hinduism. It welcomes and embraces foreigners and foreign investment in a massive way um, and it sort of weaves all of this together into this intricate um, society which you know it just blew my mind from the moment I think I set off a step foot off the plane in Singapore and realized this is what a true multicultural society is mm. um, and what a great and this, this comes back to that opportunity for businesses what a great mm. opportunity you know here's a country that just welcomes foreign investment and foreign businesses with open arms mm. um, of all sizes right of, of all sizes yeah. of all shapes um, and that's what the country's built on you know if you go back if you read about um, Singapore's history it has no natural resources it has no assets all it has is this identity as a country that's built itself up to welcome foreign investment and that's that's brought it from a small fishing village to this you know hub of 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 corporate um amazingness over the mm. last 50 years mm. um, and it's an economic powerhouse right? it's an absolute economic powerhouse yeah. um and i think to the extent where now it is ranked 
uh, by the World Bank as the easiest place in the world to do business. If you're going to set up a do set up business in Southeast Asia, there's no better place to go than Singapore. You could set up a company there quicker than we could have this conversation, opening bank accounts, running you know businesses from Australia, all that sort of thing. Um, so that was just a real eye opener for me in terms of. Um, the opportunity and how to execute on that opportunity. There you go, folks. Uh, head to Singapore because the, the the arms are open for your products and your ideas from a from a foreign uh, investment and business point of view. You then went from flight center. You you pulled up stumps and you you took a bit of a sabbatical and lay on a beach in 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 Bali and came up with the game plan Asia story, which I think we've kind of covered to a point. But while you were there, you got to see the Indonesian startup scene in action. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so landed in, in um, Bali, which is, um, it's, I've got to be honest with you, it's not Indonesia, it's Bali. Sure. Um, but we went and hid away in a quiet part of Bali, away from all the sort of tourist centres. And um, I started to use this app called Gojek which the best way to describe it is like Uber on steroids. Gojek. How's you, how do you spell that? G O. J-E-K, Gojek. Check that out. So I highly recommend you check this out and check out the Gojek story because it, it sort of evolved from a real market need. You know, whether you're in Jakarta or you're in downtown Bali, um, traffic is chaos. You know, it's absolute mayhem and bedlam. Trying to get around um, a, a, an Indonesian city is just a, a, an exercise in futility. Um, and so what Gojek did was took this traditional... Um, I guess, logistics idea of guys who sat on the street corner with their motorbikes um, riding around delivering parcels and brought that into the 21st century by layering this app over the top of it. Um, but they weren't just delivering parcels, they worked for cafes. So you've got your, um, your sort of your food pandas and your deliveroos and those sort of models. They delved into that and then they went further and they said, you know what, we'll go and fetch your shopping for you. Or do you want a massage in your villa? We'll, we'll bring that to your door. Do you need a cleaner? We'll bring that to your door. Um, do you need pharmaceuticals? We can bring that to your door. So they just started with something very small and then rapidly exploded. But it came out of um, a market need that was generated by this crazy traffic situation in Indonesia. Um, Uber went into Indonesia as well and failed spectacularly because they took the Silicon Valley model of a, a ride share in a car and tried to overlay that straight into Indonesia. It doesn't work because of because of the traffic congestion. The only reason um, Gojek works is because it's on motorbikes. So I think this is a great lesson: is not just sort of taking your business model out of your home country and thinking that it's going to automatically translate into an overseas jurisdiction. You've got to really think about what is the market need um, and how will my product work in that market. Um, so it's a, it's a fantastic story. It's you know the darling of the Indonesian startup scene, um, and there are you know there are many many more stories in in that sort of uh, that startup space. Yeah, it's like outsourcing your life onto a onto a moped oh, kind mate, of thing. It was fantastic. It yeah. allowed me to sit on a beach for four months and do nothing and have my life brought to me on a platter. That is the absolute dream. That is the absolute dream. We're getting towards the end of uh, this episode. Tell us the three things you would tell a business to consider or to do straight away if they're going to enter an ASEAN country for their business? Get up there, see it for yourself. Talk to people from ASEAN, people from Southeast Asia, and, and understand what's going on in the market and how they buy stuff, how they procure stuff, what their demands are. And thirdly, I understand this, that it, it is a region, but it is not a country. And there are nuances between 
um, cities between small towns and small villages. So you've got to appreciate and completely respect the cultural nuances that exist uh, within the region itself. Don't just treat Asia as a country. Make sure you give it the respect of being a you know a massive archipelago and uh, and continent of of distinct cultures and distinct values. Awesome, awesome uh, advice there. I haven't warned you about this, but every episode we do our little white lie session. I, I haven't given you forewarning, but could you share with us one of maybe one of the best little white lies you've ever you've ever dropped on someone or business or whatever? Doesn't matter. Nothing that um, will burn your house down. I, look, I've got to be honest. I've I've listened to a couple of your episodes, and I don't think I can top Mark Salby's little <laughs> white lie. I just don't think I can do it justice. And so what I'd like to do is spin that on its head and tell you about a little white lie of, of fear and of travel. Um, I've had the fortune of traveling to many, many different countries over, over my lifespan. I went to India uh, right after the 9-11 bombings against great advice not to. And of course, India had nothing to do with it. It wasn't involved in 9-11 in, in, in any way, shape or form. But that generated this great fear and what I think is a great lie in, in travel. Um, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to take my family to Iran, which again, I was warned against all um, you know, judgment not to take my wife and my then 18-month-old daughter to Iran, but I did, and we had one of the greatest holidays and greatest experiences we've ever had. So it's not so much a white lie that I've told, but I think that it's this white lie of, of the fear of stepping outside your comfort zone, and whether it's travelling to a new country or moving into a new country, just don't be held back by, by that fear or that, you know, that lie of, of, of the fear. Nathan, that is the perfect segue because we are finishing up season one of the Telltale podcast and we're going to take a few weeks off, but season two is going to be just about that. We're going to do a run of episodes all about fear, all about the different types, and I can't wait to get into it. Nathan Harvey from Game Plan Asia, thank you for being on the Telltale podcast. Thank you. No problem at all. And we'll see you in a few weeks, listeners. And remember, tell your tale. Telltale is part of the Content Division Podcast Network. You can subscribe on iTunes or stream it from the contentdivision.com.au forward slash podcast. Then you won't.